Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. In 2020, the healthcare landscape was significantly impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. With restrictions and border closures, access and cost of illicit substances have impacted on the patterns of use for those with substance use disorders. Offering insight into how COVID-19 has changed the alcohol and other drugs landscape from the perspective of a busy metropolitan emergency department worker is this week's podcast guest, Todd Selwood. Todd is a registered nurse with over 25 years experience in emergency, oncology, surgery and medicine in various roles. He has worked in the addiction field for a number of years and has been employed as the alcohol and other drug nurse navigator at Princess Alexandra Hospital for the last 18 months. Todd is a passionate advocate for the collaborative management for those presenting for care and supports empathetic and holistic management for those seeking guidance and support for drug and alcohol use disorders. He is also a fervent supporter of dispelling myths and quashing stigmatization of patients accessing healthcare services. Tune in as Todd delves into the challenges of addiction in the emergency department and how an alternate framework can better manage those needing effective, holistic, client-focused and timely care. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's um, it's you have such a fascinating background. You're you're a registered nurse yep. for the last twenty five years experience yep. in you know a myriad of different areas, mm-hmm. but you're currently working in um, addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd love to understand how you kind of arrived to this point uh, in your career. I think it was it was something that I had had been leading right up until this point, and it was something that I'd always been interested. I mean. I don't think there's too many people out there who haven't been touched by addictions in their lives, and I'm certainly one of those one of those people. Um, and uh, I, th- I think it sort of led me to this point where, I've, uh, you know, regardless of a person's uh, you know race, colour, creed, their uh, economics, that anybody can be affected by dependence. And I think it's something that um, that you know I'm, I'm passionate about uh, uh, dispelling some of those myths around it. And you know, because I think we're uh, People get uh, tarred with the same brush if, if they are dependent on a substance and there's lots of finger pointing, I'll have to say. Yeah. There must be, because I I'm myself yeah. uh, have also been touched by addiction. Yeah. I have close family mm-hmm. members who yeah. have been alcoholics, mm-hmm. um, drug dependent, yeah. all those sorts of things. So uh, from that sort of experience, it's such a, a difficult thing to navigate. Do you know how what the statistics are on how many people are uh, addicted to something? Oh, could I... 
to be honest with you, I couldn't quote any statistics off the top of my head. I'd have mm. to have to go and have a look. But um, I, I mean, obviously, a hundred percent of the people that I see in the mm. emergency department of PA have been uh, have been uh, are dependent on some form of substance. Mm. So it sort of skews your opinion on. Uh, uh, abuse and dependence. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not too sure on the um, on the actual stats around it. Yeah. Well, what do you think the myths are around dependence? I think that it uh, that people will uh, automatically assume that somebody who's dependent on a substance has got some character flaw, mm. and that they're totally in control of their behaviour. Mm. But uh, you know. Uh, there's lots of evidence to suggest that um, you know some of that. Childhood trauma and and, uh, and there's other uh, social determinants that really contribute to a person's uh, ongoing uh, dependence. So COVID, I imagine, has impacted <laughs> everybody. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this year, it's yeah. been a, a pretty wild ride mm, for yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, how yeah. how have you seen that impact in um, the area that you've been working in? Well, it's a, it certainly has changed uh, what substances people are taking. We've actually seen a, a drop in methamphetamine uh, intoxicated uh, patients presenting to the emergency department. Why would that be? Uh, I think the border closures has had a significant impact on um, on the uh, availability of uh, methamphetamine. Right. Um, it's also driven up the price. So, um, uh, if people are, have got limited resources, then they're not likely to go and use, use methamphetamine. They're going to use something, uh, an alternative. Uh, we've seen we've seen a significant spike in um, in alcohol uh, de- uh, people people seeking assistance and support for alcohol dependence. Um, and I think that the uh, you know COVID has really driven that because we've we've seen some of the um, some of the driving factors uh, for dependence, which are isolation, lack of purpose, mm. fear of the unknown, anxiety and depression, they've been all uh, driving uh, those individuals' dependence. And, and given the fact that they've had a, you know, a JobKeeper bonus allowance as well mm. um, and losing their jobs, it's uh, sort of driven driven that, uh, you know, the use, you know, because obviously the, you know, having bought, being bored and lonely at home is really driving that. Yeah. Dependence. Yeah, yeah. So, have uh, overall the numbers you feel have grown? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So the cases just in that different seen, ways. Yeah, in, in different ways. So we've seen methamphetamine use drop, but we've seen uh, use of other substances uh, pick up. So uh, we've seen a, a small increase in patients presenting with cannabis use and also GHB. Oh wow. Uh, which is, um, you know, it does have its impacts on. Uh, um, we've seen less patients, but the patients who have presented have been sicker. Yeah. And so with the sort of rise in the numbers, mm-hmm. how, how have you managed to continue to treat everybody through the COVID pandemic? Has that changed in any way or is the sort of systems in place still the same? Oh, the systems, I mean, we're, this is uncharted territory mm. and we really were, had no idea where, um, you know, the outcome of COVID-19 and where it, was, where it was heading. So I guess planning for that was really... Um, you know, was really difficult, and there's uh, no additional resources to be able to cope with that, uh, with the, um, you know, I guess, tsunami of patients yeah. that, that are presenting. Um, I guess you know, like everything, we have to be you know flexible and adaptable, and you know, uh, sort of um, come up with uh, new and interesting and exciting ways to be able to to to, to manage those patients. How, have you had to have a different focus for this year, or is it? Again, just sort of doing the same thing, but 
in a more <laughs> intense uh, fashion with all of the people. Yeah, I think, I think um, a lot of the community services that I work with, their focus has gone from uh, having having that face-to-face -face, uh, uh, counselling sessions with patients to more uh, telehealth uh, counselling sessions, which, I mean, it has its benefits, but it also has its uh, negatives as mm -hmm. well. Um, being able to, to have a face-to-face -face conversation with somebody can address some of that um, that, you know, that isolation yes, that they're feeling. Exactly. And, yeah, loneliness. Um, but uh, ha having a phone conversation with somebody can be equally as, um, as powerful because, uh, you know, there's... Is not the barriers um, for them engaging with a with a clinician. There's, you know, sometimes our, our patients will identify that travel is a significant barrier for them, especially if they've got limited resources. Um, so being able to have that phone conversation with a with an expert in the alcohol and drug field is something that really um, is, is yeah, essential. Yeah. You talked about um, sort of being passionate about dispelling myths and and quashing that kind yeah. of stigmatization that yep. comes with. Um, people mm. accessing uh, the healthcare yep. and and the support mm. and the services yep. that are available to them mm. what what are those barriers what why why in 2020 mm. are we still seeing those barriers and that stigmatization i think um i think people uh, have uh as, as i mentioned before people get uh tarred with the same brush you know <laughs> if you've got uh a patient who presents intoxicated with methamphetamine, who's uh, who's kicking off, is violent, abusive. Mm. Um, it sort of uh, uh, changes the way that you um, that you uh, manage the next next person that comes along. Mm. And I like to think that uh, each treading on toes here, but yeah. I, I think that e each patient that uh, presents should be treated as even if they're the same patient representing over and over again, mm. each occasion of service should be treated as a separate occasion. Mm. And our experience with that person or that uh, cohort of patients shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be determined by one single act or one single behaviour. Is there a particular demographic that you're seeing that has increased during this time? Or I think oh, this is just me shooting off the cuff now, so I don't, I don't have any evidence to of it. Of course. But I think that um, the amount of younger people who are using uh, benzodiazepines has, has sort of increased, uh, whether it's because it's readily available. Mm. Um, there is lots of counterfeit uh, benzodiazepines on, on the street at the moment and it's easily accessible. Um, as we saw in our, uh, one of the presentations yesterday, the, um, uh, the dark net, it's readily available so people mm. can order it online and have it delivered within, you know, within days. So, and this is something that I think has changed, um, uh, you know, maybe with COVID-19, but also with the cost of alcohol uh, at pubs and clubs, maybe driving some of that, uh, you know, preloading before p young people go mm. out and also the use of uh, benzodiazepines as well. Yeah. What are your biggest concerns about um, alcohol and other drug substances and the use of that? Like what, what do you, what challenges, I guess, are you mm. facing um, in that area? I think the um, one of the, one of the biggest challenges that I have is that um, uh, particularly with alcohol, um, we see lots of people who come into come into the emergency department who have uh, been expressing suicidal ideation mm. uh, or had a, a attempt at suicide, um, particularly when they're intoxicated. Um, so I do lots of education with patients around the fact that in small doses, alcohol is a stimulant, and makes mm. you feel good. In larger doses, it's a it's a terrible depressant. Mm. So if you've got somebody who's got an underlying depression and they're they're feeling, 
you know, lonely, bored, isolated, um, feeling ostracised from society, uh, don't feel good enough uh, and feeling depressed and you add a depressant on top of it uh, that is that disinhibits them as well, then that can lead them to a situation where they're considering taking their own lives. Mm. It's a difficult situation because from a, from, a, from a mental health point of view, once they sober up, they're not suicidal anymore. Mm. Um, and it puts us in a precarious position where right now when this person's intoxicated, they're suicidal, but when they sober up, they're no longer suicidal. Yeah. So how to mitigate that risk. And, yeah. yeah. And how do you manage that though? Because it's obviously it's almost situational. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, edu- educating them on the risks of drinking when they're feeling depressed, mm. um, encouraging them to reach out to their social supports is, is something that is uh, – is, um, is essential, um, especially when they're feeling depressed. Mm. Um, linking in with a, a counsellor or a psychologist, in particular, to get some uh, get some uh, you know support and address some of the uh, some of the depression and and better ways to manage that that doesn't lead them to drinking. Because that's what I find quite fascinating is that alcohol is a legal drug. Oh yeah, essentially, yep. and yep. yet it's probably one of the most abused yeah. in a lot of ways because it's so accessible yeah. and it is legal. Yeah. So should alcohol be illegal or does that not help? Is no, it no. all about education? Yeah. And I think it's about education and, and what, uh, what I tell people on a daily basis is reserve alcohol for when you're celebrating because mm. I think that that's, that's something that, uh, you know, it, it can really lubricate that celebration and we've got that relationship with alcohol where um, – you know, we'll use it as a, a as a lubricant to celebrate, mm. and um, you know, it, it, and particularly when we're depressed, it, uh, if we start drinking, then it can uh, it can bring back some of those mm. some of those good feelings. But uh, in a, over a period of time, and depending on how much alcohol you drink, it can be that horrible depressant. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I find quite fascinating as well. Being a, a mother of, of three very young children, I have a lot of friends and mm. family who are starting to have a glass of wine at the end of the day yeah. because it, it's yeah. hard work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, but is that the distinction? Should alcohol only be used as that form of celebration, or can it be a relax? Like, oh, absolutely, relaxing. it can be a relaxant as well. Yeah, yeah, and it sort of. So, yeah. what's the distinction between? you know, using it in a negative way. Well, I, th- I think if, you, if you're feeling depressed and you're using it to avoid those emotions, those feelings, rather than uh, ad- addressing them, I think that that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's the difference between it. Because mm. if you're using it to escape um, those emotions, you never actually uh, deal with, those, with the emotional content of that trauma or that in- incident or that issue. Mm. And what that does is it drives that cyclical uh, sort of use because, you know, if, you've, if, you, if you drink a significant amount feeling really depressed, you wake up the next day feeling remorse and mm. shame and guilt about what you've done. Um, the best thing that works is those first couple of drinks. So mm. it creates a cycle where it becomes a, a daily sort of pattern. Yeah, just um, speaking about cycles, I know with um, my loved one who is an alcoholic and has um, recovered from drug mm-hmm. abuse but um, is still dealing with the ongoing effects of alcoholism, is it a, like you talk about the cycle of, you know, getting the f- first few drinks and then mm-hmm. obviously going into a depressive mm-hmm. episode, um, 
is there a cycle in they might not drink for a while and then all of a sudden go through a binging phase or is it very different for every um, person? I think, uh, it's different for everybody, but there, there is certain certainly patterns of binge drinking that, that we do see. So, uh, And patients that I see will say, well, one's too many and a hundred's not enough. So mm. they, they go into that cycle. What I, lo- what I always get them to do is I get them to consider how they're feeling when they do make that decision to go on that binge mm. because dealing with those emotions prior can reduce the impact that that binge drinking episode is having on you know on on them as a person mm. so uh, if they can address some of that emotional content um, uh, before they have that binge and and potentially delay when they start binging then sometimes that can have a significant impact on the amount that they do drink you speak about um, sort of having an empathetic and a holistic yep. management approach um, for people mm. who are dealing with alcohol mm-hmm. and other drug mm-hmm. use. Um, what does that look like? What does that mean? Uh, I guess uh, my stance is that I always come from a place of curiosity about the person. You know, I really want to get to know that, that person. So establishing that rapport is really important, coming from a place of compassion as well, seeing them as not, um, not somebody who's alcohol dependent but wanting to explore some of the reasons why they started drinking or starting using substances in the first place because mm. if you can get to the crux of what they're potentially escaping from or those emotions that they're avoiding um, and you deal with the mental health uh, content uh, of it. Uh, as well in conjunction with dealing with the, um, the physical, uh, physical dependence of the substance and I think it, the, a patient stands to have a better outcome. Yeah. So what does that look like? Does that mean, obviously, you know, counselling, psychology? Yep, 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 does it yep. mean meditation? Yep. Does it mean... Oh, all of those things, yeah, yeah. So I'll encourage patients to uh, participate in mindfulness exercises but also engage with a, a, their GP to get a mental health care plan uh, and engage with a community-based uh, psychologist to address some of that anxiety, depression, some of that childhood trauma or trauma in the past that has really geared them towards uh, having a dependence. Um, and do that in conjunction with uh, specific alcohol and drug counselling, which is really the the gold standard in treatment, I guess. Is there some sort of um, common thread between people that you see who have alcohol and other drug use, abuse? Sleep. Sleep. Sleep? Sleep. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd have to say that I reckon probably 70 or 80% of people that I see... um, it's all anecdotal. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, report that they have really poor sleep patterns. Yes. Um, and they've always had poor sleeping patterns. Right. It's something that uh, as adults we get out of. Mm. You know, when, when you're a child, you have the same routine every night before you go to bed. You, mm. you know, you have a bath. You have, sleep hygiene. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> sleep hygiene. And it's something that we get out of when we get a, when we become adults and, and uh, become responsible for families yes. and mortgages and that sort of stuff. Um, but it's something that certainly gears... That um, you know that dependence as well. I think that's you know. fascinating yeah. because I I've I've been having this argument with my five year old at yeah, the yeah. moment <laughs> because she doesn't want to go to bed and I'm like this is just what we do every night yeah. we always go to sleep yeah. and that's what's really important we mm. try to have that same routine yeah. every night to allow them yeah. but yes you're right as yeah. adults we get out of we that. get out of that and, and and we'll we'll see people who'll use all forms of substance just to facilitate that sleep and yeah uh, I mean evidence does suggest that. Um, like uh, cannabis, for instance, uh, pe- people uh, smoke cannabis to, you know, f- to relax and facilitate sleep, but they mm. don't get into that good REM 
uh, rejuvenating sleep, uh, sleep that their body requires, and um, it it drives that. You know, they wake up feeling you know less rejuvenated, mm. and, and which can drive that cycle of uh, which of alcohol use as well. would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you feel pretty crummy. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And we, we well, there's there's a number of patients that I see who are heavily heavily dependent, and their sleeping patterns are all based on them waking up in alcohol withdrawals. Um, right. Yeah. So they drink until they pass out, then wake up three or four hours later and continue drinking. So and that is their sleeping pattern. It's really hard to break that. That cycle. Yeah. Well, so what would your recommendation be to help with sleep? I think uh, avoid blue screens um, uh, prior to going to sleep. Mm. Um, avoid any stimulants, um, uh, uh, cigarettes or, or caffeine four to six hours before you go to bed. So being on my third cup of coffee already today is probably well, not Well, hopefully, hopefully you're not going to bed in four hours. <laughs> no, no, maybe I will. I'm very tired. <laughs> well, well, you've got three kids. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so just getting into those regular rhythms yeah, as yeah. well, and, trying and, to go to sleep yeah, at the yeah. same time. Yeah, that's it. Get, get into that uh, healthy sleeping routine. And I guess, um, you know, it's something that's easy to, easy to fall out of, but it's something that can really um, be easy to get back into, getting into that same routine every night mm. um read a book mm. they're all very simple things they're all they're, oh, oh yeah absolutely they're simple but uh you know i, I guess if, the other thing is that if you if you've had a, uh, some conflict throughout the day mm. try and um try and resolve that before you go to bed at night because you know uh, i guess your brain will continue mulling over that even when you're trying to sleep and it can really drive, uh, you know, poor, poor sleep yeah. related to that. So, yeah, yeah. That's, that's really yeah. fascinating. And like, you know, now that you've mentioned it, of course, of course that's one of the major issues that a lot of people are experiencing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's sleeping, uh, poor sleep, uh, as, uh, I mean, evidence does suggest that, you know, if you, if you have poor sleep, then you're more likely to have um, uh, to be uh, less resilient. Mm. to stress mm. and you also um uh, have poor food choices yeah, yeah. A- absolutely because yeah. i know um i ha- had postnatal depression after the birth of my first daughter and mm-hmm. i pretty much wholly attribute that to having chronic sleep deprivation oh, yeah. yeah absolutely yeah and it just leads to yeah. such a spiral mm. of self-worth and mm. you know your ability to be resilient yeah. and make decisions it's um incredibly complicated but also very simple yeah, yeah. if we're able That's, to oh, well get the rest that we need and uh, you know to be honest with you i think that the simple practical tips are, are, are the ones that i think uh, are the mainstay of my intervention is that these are simple things but if, if you do them right and and if you know sometimes that that will help does exercise play a part in that as oh, well yeah i think so yeah i mean exercise gives you you know those all, all those nice uh, feel-good hormones um you know that uh, that i guess substances can uh, can give you as well, but uh, sort of replacing those with a natural high is really, mm. really essential. And it creates that uh, that cycle where you know if you if you exercise first up in the morning, it creates that routine and that pattern where you uh, you're exhausted by the end of the night. And mm. You actually might be able to get you might some be able to get some sleep, good yeah. quality Rejuvena- sleep, yeah. rejuvenating sleep. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. So, what do you feel? The direction is in treating um, alcohol and drug use. Is it that empathetic, holistic approach? Is that where you would like to see um, the area move in more? I think so. Like, there's so many determinants that uh, that um, that drive uh, dependence. Um, I see lots of people who are homeless, who are, um, you know, I've got 
DV, childhood trauma, or, you know, all these things have been culminating to a point where they're living on the street, they're using, you know, whatever they can get their hands on. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, being able to address some of those driving factors, so being able to support them in, in getting some accommodation, mm. getting some counselling around their uh, childhood uh, trauma, um, and doing it in a way that's empathetic and non-judgmental. That must be really. challenging at times because I imagine there are some people who have done some very bad things that yep. you would be treating, mm -hmm. um, but yep. also probably have had traumatic upbringings as well. So how do you kind of distance, see them as human beings? Yeah, distance yourself from it, yeah. I guess there's, uh, yeah, that's a tough question, mm. I'll have to say. Yeah. Um, Separating the behaviour from the person, uh, I think, is is the mainstay of what I do. Mm. You know, be, not being able to change what's happened in the past, and this is something that I'll talk to the to the patient about. You can't change what's happened in the past, mm. but you can certainly change how it dictates what you do in the future. Yeah, um, because sometimes they they get into that cycle where they can't see that there's any way out. There's no hope, mm. but being able to instil a little bit of hope, I think, is probably it's probably something that will hopefully make a difference to them in, into the future. Yeah, because I, I do find that really interesting because, you know, it's, uh, again, dealing with um, uh, my loved one, it's, uh, it's sometimes difficult to separate their behaviour mm. with um, them. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and their alcoholism or their drug abuse with their behaviours, mm. but the reality is it's an illness. That's right. And, yeah. you know, it's not them as a person no. who are behaving that way. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Mm. It's a very that's, difficult oh, thing to navigate. Well, that's, uh, absolutely, 100%, yeah. I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, I, I, see, I see between 60 and 80 patients a month. Generally, my, um, my intervention with those patients is is quite succinct it's sharp and focused mm. um and uh more often than not i only ever see that patient once so being mm. able to provide that meaningful intervention right there and then and some practical tips to hopefully support them into the future to reduce them from coming back mm. um is uh, hopefully i'm having some some wins there yeah, yeah. Mm. absolutely mm. what incredible work you're doing uh, so what are you hoping to Focus on for 2021. What's what are the goals for well, you? Well, me, me and uh, a mental health nurse practitioner are, are establishing a nurse-led um, dual diagnosis clinic. So that's something that we're going to kick off early 2021, just as a bit of a stopgap for patients, you know, to 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 check in after they've been discharged from the emergency department. So what does that involve? Does that people then go on to to see them yes yeah, so me, me and uh, uh, Chris will we will see collaboratively see patients because I guess one of the one of the other barriers for patients is uh, has in the past there's been a um, mental health and addictions has, have essentially worked in silo so being able to collaborate and work mm. together um, and be able to address somebody's mental health and alcohol and drug service together is, mm. is something that's really driving driving them to make that change and um, support them, um, you know, holistically. Yeah, it's that holistic, yeah. collaborative yeah. approach. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And we also work uh, really closely with our, um, the homeless social worker as well, so being able to address some of those gaps in, you know, uh, accommodation issues and homelessness and that. Fantastic, Todd. Thank yeah. you so much oh, for no. being with us yeah, this thanks, morning. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Excellent. Thank, Thank you. you.
Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.